lots of people have different views, some of which are wrong, to agreeing that all views are equally true. It, this book was reviewed by the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, and here's some things that they said regarding this new definition of tolerance. They said, the opening chapters focus on the distinction between the old tolerance and the new tolerance. Tolerance in the old sense meant having a set of beliefs that people believed to be true and tolerating the fact that others may have their own set of beliefs. But that tolerance allowed people to think that others were wrong and allowed people to share and debate their beliefs to prove their point with the idea that truth would win out. Those who were intolerant did not allow people to share their side. Under the new tolerance, though, there is no absolute truth. Being tolerant now means that people can hold their own beliefs but cannot think that anyone else's beliefs are wrong. If someone questions another's beliefs, then they are automatically declared intolerant, whether they are right or wrong. If you begin with this new view of tolerance and then elevate this view to the supreme position in the hierarchy of moral virtues, the supreme sin is intolerance. It helps to explain why the new tolerance is not tolerant of a religion that holds to a standard of truth and morality for public use. That results in inconsistencies within a secular society that assumes it holds a neutral position on all issues, and those who disagree are intolerant. In a word, as they, the new tolerance, become more convinced of their superiority and their neutrality, they become less tolerant. As for morality, new tolerance refuses to label behavior as right or wrong. The result is the following situation. Relativism refuses to acknowledge sin and evil the way the Bible does, and therefore it never adequately confronts sin and evil, and therefore leaves people enslaved by sin and evil. With no discussion possible, all that is left is to debate tolerance and intolerance. This is the new modern view. It's a virtue to be considered tolerant. Tolerant meaning all views are equally true. There is no absolute truth. And I have to not only uh, uh, accept that you're sitting at the table with me, but I have to agree with your opinion on the other side. When I agree with all of the diverse opinions, then I have shown myself to be tolerant. Anyone who does not agree that all opinions are equally valid and equally true are the intolerant ones, and they are the bad guys, and they are the enemy. This is the modern view of tolerance, and it's being taught in our schools, and it's the view that society will take. It'll be the view that media takes. The old view of tolerance has changed into this new view, and it's the mindset that people have and the virtue that they bring when they walk into the modern Christian church. When people come to the modern Christian church, they still hold in their mind this sense of the highest virtue is my tolerance that all ideas are equal. Everything is validly true. Nobody gets to say they're right, and nobody gets to say they're wrong, and we do this all together. And if we can do this all together and keep some sense of peace, then we will call that love. This view in the modern church has made it difficult for us. It's made it extremely difficult because here, here's the thing. Within the boundaries of Christianity, there has always been a lawgiver. 
within the boundaries of the Christian faith, it means it's not that we all hold equally valid opinions. It's that there is a lawgiver who says what is true. And he leaves his word for us that is true. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the one who gets to say this is what is true. This is reality. This is not reality. This is right. This is wrong. And he leaves it through his word, the Bible. He hands it down to us and he says, this is the guideline. Follow my word. Follow my ways. And it actually isn't up to us to decide what's right or wrong. It's up to him. It's up to us to either obey or disobey. And it makes it very difficult in the modern era to do church. Because in, within the church, as society comes in, they hold this opposite view. The opposite view is that you're intolerant because you believe there is a lawgiver who has said what truth is and what reality is. And therefore, you must be evil because you're intolerant people. Some time ago, the Reverend Easton Williams, he's a United Methodist minister, and as that denomination was deciding and going through a very difficult time of, of deciding whether they should perform gay marriages within that denomination, uh, he, being very supportive of the position of gay marriage, said, at the end of the day, I'd rather be excluded for who I include than included for who I exclude. This became an extremely popular saying. In fact, you can find it on T-shirts and coffee mugs and get posters of it. It's been circulated out. I, you look this up online, and you can find Buddhists are quoting it and other different people of, of different persuasions and atheists are uh, including it. All sorts of people are loving the sentiment of this. At the end of the day, I'd rather be excluded for who I include than included for who I exclude. It's a beautiful sentiment that makes people feel a sense of, I'm compassionate, I'm understanding, I'm loving, I bring people in, I believe everybody's equally right, and of course this statement is, at a natural level, absurd. It's completely absurd. In fact, every group excludes somebody, right? You can't say, I include, I love who I include. I include. But what it means is, who do you really include? I include everybody who agrees with me. And I exclude everybody who disagrees with me, is really what the statement is saying. When I first heard this, I was talking to some people about it. They said this was their, their uh, sort of their virtue. They were a Christian person, and they were lifting this up as a virtue to me. And they, they quoted this to me, and I said, huh, I bet you that was on a sign outside the temple in King Josiah's time. Now, those of you who don't know your Bible don't understand why that joke is funny. That's a very funny joke. <laughs> King Josiah was one of the last kings of the people of Israel. And in his time, they, ex they included everything and everybody. In fact, inside the temple courts themselves, they had virtually every idol to every god there was. And King Josiah, when he took over... He immediately began to purge. They went deep into the inner courts of the temple of God himself, pulling out all of the idols to every false god that they had brought in and incorporated in their worship. There was a big sun chariot out front with these huge uh, horses pulling this giant statue that had been there for 500 years since the time of Solomon. And he destroyed that. And he absolutely obliterated everything that violated the law that God had given, which is, thou shalt make no graven image, thou shalt have no other gods before me, the first commandments. They've been violating to unbelievable degrees. He tried to purge the society, and of course, he would die, and 15 years later, the Babylonians would come in and utterly wipe out that nation for its wickedness. 
So all of the inclusion that they were uh, applauding themselves for and having was actually bringing the judgment of God on them. So I said, yeah. At the end of the day, I'd rather be excluded for I include than included for I exclude. I said, yeah, that was probably on the temple in King Josiah's time. <laughs> the result being 15 years after his death, after his death, the society was wiped out. I had a friend once, she was in a dialogue with a Unitarian Universalist seminary student who was an atheist. As an atheist, he felt like that was the best fit for him. I don't believe in God. I'm going to seminary to be a pastor as an atheist and the Unitarian Universalist are who I like. And so she was talking to him, and he says, oh, everybody can come to the Unitarian Universalist Church. Everybody's welcome. We don't hold anything against anyone. So Jews, Christians, Muslims, New Age people, Wiccans, and atheists are all welcome. And my friend, who wasn't a Christian herself, I don't believe, she could see that that was kind of odd, and so she said, yeah, I can't believe that's true in her mind. So she asked him, she goes, oh, anyone can come? So you include Nazis, KKK, and Satanists? And he was like, oh, no, not them. No, no, we don't include them. We won't allow them. She goes, well, how do you know? If you don't bring them to the table, how can you, not, how can you say you include everyone when you exclude them? And, and, and she asked, why not? And he goes, well, because they are wrong. To which, you know, she asked this atheist person, well, by what determination are you deciding a group is wrong and cannot be included? And that began this sort of confusion for him to think of, well, there's groups that are wrong and groups that are right. We don't let anyone in who's wrong, but there's no belief system for why you would call someone wrong and someone else right. And so they had that confusion. All through history, the church stands for something. We stand for the rule and the law and the lordship of Jesus Christ. As king of kings and lord of lords, as son of God, he's the master. He gets to say what is right and wrong, and we get to decide whether we obey or disobey. That's all there is to it. So here we are in this strange world. If we're for something, it must mean we're against something. By default, you can't stand for something without being against something else. And then the question becomes, well, who, who, who sets the standards? In the Catholic Church, it's the magisterium. All of the bishops come together, and when they decide something is right or true, that becomes the truth. For Protestants, it becomes the Word of God and only the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. It's like, where is it in the Bible? And there is our, for all Protestants, that's where we come down to. Where is it in the Bible? Debate it from there. And do we collectively agree by vote, or does God say it? Right, well, God has said. Now, there are some things hard to understand. We don't De debate that. We say, yeah, there are some things that are confusing, hard to understand, different interpretations. But fundamentally, God is the one who gets to speak and say it. Jesus is in charge. There was a moment in history, in the very beginning of the church age, when Jesus came to a church that prided itself on its tolerance. Let's look at this passage and see what Jesus would say to a tolerant church. It's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Now, the city is called Thyatira, and uh, there's, it's in, deep in, the, in this valley. I think I have a map of where it occurs. It's in modern-day Turkey. It was on a main trade route kind of road. All the uh, empires of the Far East, you know, from the Persians to the Babylonians, everything who would come sweeping across into their territory, the capital of Pergamum needed some sort of defense system set up, 
so that if an army invaded, there would be like, where's the first place, where's the first fortress that an enemy army would occur? And they set up Thyatira to be that place. It was, had an elite Roman guard station there. It wasn't going to be the place where all the defenses were. It would slow invading armies. And I think there's some pictures of some archaeological digs that they're doing. Even now, the problem is it's sit inside the modern Turkish city. So in the downtown area, they're finding these ancient uh, uh, sites from Thyatira of the ancient Roman times. So an elite Roman guard is stationed there because it was a fortress city. It was a military outpost city. Uh, at several times, it had been utterly destroyed and rebuilt. Today, the ruins are very, very small. It didn't have any significant shrines. It didn't have uh, emperor worship. wasn't big there. It wasn't a major trade city. It wasn't super wealthy, and it wasn't super important. But in the book of Revelation, when Jesus speaks to seven churches, this church gets the longest letter of all. The least important city gets the longest words. Persecution wasn't much of a threat in Thyatira. It was famous for one thing and one thing only. It's trade guilds. It had groups of, we would call them today, unions. They, it had trade guilds of people who were craftsmen of, of silver, or their most famous thing was purple dye. That was the big thing. Lydia, who the Apostle Paul would meet through over in Greece in a place of, of Macedonia and Philippi, she, her Lydia was from this town, and she was a dyer of purple. This was what they were very famous for. They had others, bronze work and and blacksmithing and all kinds of things. And the way a trade guild worked is you kept the craftsmanship super secret because you didn't want other people to learn what you could do because they would set up competition. So all of the people who were, let's say, blacksmiths would get together and they would make sure that they and only they had the knowledge of their smithing. And they would all, their, them and their sons, you would make sure that for generations, you and your family would be well taken care of because you would be the only families in a district who knew the craft and they would trade each other secrets, but they wouldn't allow or ever teach any outsiders what they did. And every single trade guild had a patron god or goddess. And you would always worship the patron god or goddess by once a month going to some major festival where sacrifices would be made and where there would be a lot of drunkenness and they would turn into these huge orgies. Every month, these different guilds would gather together and they would worship their God. And they were these secret societies. They were sort of like Freemasons of the time. And this is how the society functioned and worked. Your success in the society depended on your loyalty to the trade guild you were a part of. That was going to be your commercial success. That was going to be your way of making it that was going to be your way of ensuring your family would always have food to eat would always prosper that your children would end up with a craft that they could pass on that they would be stabilized and if you did not participate in the pagan rituals that were associated with your trade craft they looked at you like what's wrong with you you're not really one of us you're not uniting with us and the christians were having a hard time figuring out how do i love jesus I learn how to be a blacksmith. I keep my blacksmith profession following Jesus. But what about the God, probably Hephaestus, who they would have to worship once a month in a pagan orgy? And this was the confusion going on in Thyatira. And so Jesus comes to this church and he speaks to them. And here's what he says in his opening words. And I think I have the scripture in the New American Standard translation there. To the angel... Of the church in Thyatira, right? And this is Jesus speaking. 
the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So he comes on, this, on the scene, and, and it's interesting because in every single one of these letters to the seven churches, he starts with an attribute about himself. And each of the attributes about himself are the important focus that this church needs to hear. And in this one, he starts by saying, he's the son of God. Only time that phrase is used in the entire book of Revelation. Only time. So what is he establishing right off the bat? All of you are probably sitting around debating who's right, who's wrong, who gets to say, who's the lawgiver, who's the collective thing. What are you deciding collectively? So I need to start off with something. I'm the son of God. I'm the one who gets to say. I'm the all-powerful. I'm the only one who knows truth. I'm the only one who can speak to reality. And when I speak, that is all that you need to hear. That it's a done deal. So he starts by claiming this title as the son of God. He says what is true. And then the attributes are the eyes of a flame of fire. And the, the implication is his burning gaze can penetrate deep through the lies and the deceit and the deception and the mist and the fogs of, of, of what the enemy has put out. He can get to the core of what is true. His eyes penetrate like a blazing fire. They burn off deceit or they're carried like a torch into the darkness to light up a world that cannot see that is blind. And his, his gaze can see it all. And then he focuses on, and feet like burnished bronze, that where he walks, where he treads, and actually that, that phrasing is really hard to translate in English. It means like metal that's coming out of a furnace blazing hot and glowing. That's, that's actually the phrasing. It means like, yeah, like pulled from a furnace. So where he walks and where he treads is a judgment of destruction or of power that he can tread upon any evil that is there and he can destroy it. And so he's saying this, make no mistake about what I'm about to say. I'm the one who knows what is true. I'm the son of God who tells you what reality is and I have the power to judge and destroy anything set up against me. That's what he's telling them before he even tells them his words. And then I love what he does next because the next thing he says, he tells them the great things they're doing. And he gives these great things and there's five wonderful things. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your servants, and your perseverance. Wonderful things. You, I see it and I know it. You guys have done a great job expanding your love. You have good works. You're compassionate. You help the poor. You feed the hungry. You clothe the naked. You take care of each other. You're great at that kind of thing. You have love for people. Your, your love is wide open. You're very accepting. And I love the fact that your love spreads out. You have faith. You have held on to who I am. He goes, and you've persevered. It hasn't been easy, but you've stayed the course and you haven't given up. I love that about you, he's telling these people. And then he says, not only that, but you're doing it better now than at first. You're better at showing deeds of love and faith and perseverance now, years later after the church was established. And this is probably 40, 50 years after the church was established. And you're doing better now than you did when you started, which actually isn't the case with most churches. Usually what happens is as time wears on, the opposite happens. We give up on our faith. We give up on our works. We give up on our good deeds. We give up on our love for all the people. We actually become more of maybe what people might call a holy huddle. And we hang out just with each other, and we then begin to find ways that we pay someone else to do the good deeds. 
and we don't actually do them ourselves. Or you hear people who've long been in the faith to say, I have served my time, I've served Jesus, it's someone else's turn, I'm quitting now, I'm checking out now, I'm going to go stand on the sidelines now. That's the more common thing. Usually the deeds at the last are way less than the deeds that were done at the first. This church, the opposite was true. They're like, here you are all these years later and you haven't given up. You're still doing strong. You're still hanging in there. Your deeds are good and I love that about you, Jesus is saying. You haven't given up and you haven't quit. But William Barclay, in his commentary, noted this. He said, on the surface, the church at Thyatira was strong and flourishing. If a stranger went into it, he would be impressed with its boundless energy and its generous liberality and its apparent steadfastness. For all that, there was something essential missing. Here is a warning. A church which is crowded with people and which is a hive of energy is not necessarily a real church. It is possible for a church to be crowded because its people come to be entertained instead of instructed and to be soothed instead of confronted with the fact of sin and the offer of salvation. It may be a highly successful Christian club rather than a real Christian congregation. And he wrote those words in the 1960s. I wonder what he would say about how the American church feels today. I know that interesting thing becomes this idea of this love that just goes out and doing the deeds. It's hard to keep it up. It gets exhausting. You get what's called compassion fatigue. It's a hard lesson to learn. Many times, for those of us who've been in the, I'll call it the industry of poverty care, for lack of a better term, it gets tiring because, you know, at some point what you want is a return on your investment, right? You want that. And at some point you realize, I'm not going to get the return on the investment I'm hoping to see. God calls me to love hundreds, maybe even thousands of people with my acts of kindness and charity and good deeds and compassion towards them and my outreach and my self-sacrifice and my finances. And he asked me to do that. And what I keep waiting for is, and then the person who's on the other end of the receiving end will show some sense of gratitude and some sense of transformation, and they will reform and become a better person because of the charity I've given them. And you know what? They don't. And it gets exhausting, and it gets disappointing, and we want to quit doing it. We want to say, well, Lord, there's not a great return. We would find where we would feed 150 people downtown, that maybe six or seven of them in the course of a year would make even the slightest change out of the homeless situation they were in. I know several of you are going to spend an afternoon packing sack lunches today, and you're going to pray over those sack lunches, and they're going to go to a homeless shelter two blocks away, and they're going to feed those people for an entire week. And the thing you want to feel is the sense of gratitude and hope and the fact that someone's helping those people means they're going to rise up and they're going to say I don't want this life anymore and they will transform into something greater than they are now and some of them will and many of them won't and this is the thing you never know who's going to be who you got to feed 150 to find out which eight or nine are going to respond to the love and the compassion and the sacrifice that you're giving. And Jesus says, don't give up. Keep doing that. That's the way it works. And I have to think of his love, which is constantly poured out on a world that rejects him, hates him, despises him, does not respond. And you know what? He still does good things for evil people. 
It's one of the things that drives me nuts about Jesus. <laughs> Just one. He does good things. He blesses people who don't deserve it. And he keeps doing it. Waiting for the day when they may respond. And he calls us to do the same. He says, be like me. Don't give up. Your deeds at the end should be greater than your deeds were at the beginning. You should have gotten better at doing it, not worse at doing it. Don't give up on doing it. Keep it going. And what we have to do is let go of the sense that we deserve any kind of return on the investment. What we have to let go of is the sense that all those souls belong to Jesus Christ, not to me, not to you. They're not ours to control. They're his to love. They're his to respond to. It's the work of his Holy Spirit. He asks us to be obedient to him, which might mean we're going to feed 40 people for deep into March or maybe even longer. Who knows what God's plans are? And he tells us, don't get tired of doing it. And we'll say, well, what good is the outcome? And he's not asking us to ask that question. He's not requiring that question from us. He's requiring us to be responsible and letting him determine the outcome. You do your work with your hands, put your prayers over those lunches, and let him do the rest of the work. And he will sort through who deserves to be blessed in a higher level, and who's, who's going to respond and who's not. And that's just the way it is. He turns around and he says this to the church of Thyatira. After telling him this great stuff, he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and they eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Interesting, this opening thing, he says you tolerate, and some of your translations will say allow. It's a weird word. It occurs in the New Testament many, many times. Um, one of the main meanings, it can mean that you permit something by negligence. By failing to pay attention to it, you have permitted it or allowed it. And that's kind of what the word actually means. You've neglected it. And then he says that woman Jezebel. Now, we don't know if there was a real woman named Jezebel in that congregation. I would say probably not. A lot of kids, you notice, don't, don't name their daughters Jezebel anymore. <laughs> Just like they don't name their sons Judas some, some names have sort of fallen out of popularity. A lot of Bible names you can see, but Jezebel's never been a popular name to call your baby. And why is that? Well, because the real Jezebel that Jesus is referring to, she lived about 800, well, almost from the time of this writing, about 900 years earlier. She lived in 874 B.C. And you can read her story in 1 Kings chapter 16 all the way through 22. You can read the story of her and her husband Ahab. Ahab takes the throne of Israel, the northern kingdom. He's supposed to be leading the ten tribes of Jewish people in the faith of Yahweh. But instead he is corrupt and he's an idolater. He hates God and he loves all the Baals and the Ashtoreths and these other false gods. He would rather worship them. And so he's discarding the true God to follow these false gods. He marries this Sidonian princess because it's a great alliance with the Sidonian Empire. And she comes to his court to be his wife. Her name is Jezebel, and she kicks things up even more. If he was bad, she was worse. And her whole thing is, we're going to change this whole nation of God worshipers, of Yahweh worshipers, into Baal and Ashtoreth worshipers. And so she would go about raising up these Baal priests and these Baal prophets. And it got at first it was a tolerant experience. 
uh, sort of thing. Like, we're going to tolerate you Yahweh worshipers while we start to turn the whole society toward Baal and Ashtoreth. But as time went on, the problem with the Yahweh worshipers is they wouldn't give in. And so she, one by one, starts to have them eliminated and executed. And at that time, God sends the prophet Elijah, and he speaks to Ahab, and he speaks to Jezebel, and on and on and on. She's encouraging sexual immorality, and she's encouraging any of the laws that God has, she wants violated. And this is her reign, and they will go down in history as the two of the most wicked kings. Actually, he will go down as the worst king of Israel. The most wicked king. In fact, the scriptures literally say that all the other kings together didn't equal his evil. That's how great his evil was and in partnership with her. And eventually God would speak judgment against her. And in a coup, someone else would come. Ahab would die in a war, a little coup, a little shifting goes. And then the new general would arrive. He's going to take over his king. And uh, she paints herself up to look all pretty. She's going to seduce the new king. Her husband Ahab's dead. She's standing in the window. And uh, she calls down to him, and long story short, he calls the servants up there to throw her out the window, and they do, and she dies. They go inside, her dead body splattered on the ground. They go inside and sit down and have dinner. And he starts to feel bad about the dinner. He's like, okay, uh, you know, she was a princess. She is a king's daughter. We better treat her with a little more respect. Somebody go out, find the body, and we better bury her. And they go out, and all they can find is part of her skull and her hands without the fingers. The dogs have eaten the rest of her. And that was a prophecy that had come true that God had told her through the prophet. That was it, 900 years before. So the name Jezebel had not passed through history as a very good name. So when Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, you have a Jezebel in your midst, it should cause huge alarm bells to go off inside them. Someone that they had thought was, well, she has some different ideas. Well, you know, I don't always agree with her. Well, she encourages some things that I wouldn't do, but, you know, who am I to say? She was one of those kinds of things. And here God comes on the scene, and he goes, you've permitted this. You've allowed this. You've tolerated this, and I have this against you. And not only that, but somehow she's inside the church. It's interesting because in all of these church letters to the, through the book of Revelation, he doesn't judge the outside world around them. He judges the churches. He's not talking about how their society is. He's talking about how they are. And he says, you have that woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. Always a bad sign, by the way. When someone self-proclaims their leadership, when someone self-proclaims their spiritual power, when someone self-proclaims that they are a prophet or a prophetess or self-proclaims somehow, since I have an anointing from God and therefore you should listen to me, that's always a bad sign. And it happens in the modern era. Always a bad sign. If you're a prophet or a prophetess, and if you really have a true anointing, you just speak what God has said, and the rest of us will be the judge whether you're the real thing or not. But if you self-proclaim, something's terribly wrong. She had enticed them, it says, to sexual immorality. And the word there is porneia, where we get the word pornography. She had enticed them to sexual immorality, which always is the easiest thing to do. Greed, sex, the two easiest things to entice people towards. And it's always been interesting because the Bible's view of sexuality has always been different than societies. It's certainly different than modern America's society. Uh, our modern American view sort of laughs at adultery and, you know, doesn't think anything of promiscuity and doesn't think that sex inside marriage or whatever even matters. I mean, our, our whole view of the society's view of sex is playful, right? And 
and um, not a big deal, no harm, no foul kind of thing. Sow your seeds, who cares, it's fine. That's the modern view of sex, but that's not the biblical view. And Jesus is coming saying, inside the church, someone is preaching and teaching the society view. And God is angry about that. Jesus is angry, and you've tolerated it. They were probably Gnostics, which meant that they had this view of the early day, that was what the church was fighting. Gnostics was a philosophy view that the soul and spirit are completely different than the body. Matter is evil and spirit is good. And so one of the things that Gnostics taught was your soul and your spirit can soar into the realms of God. And whatever your body does, it doesn't even matter because the two have nothing to do with each other. So let your body indulge. Let your body be gluttonous. Let your body engage in whatever urge you have sexually. Fulfill those fantasies. Do whatever you want in your body because it has nothing to do with your soul and your spirit. Your soul and your spirit are going out to achieve God. And so they were probably Gnostics teaching inside the church. That's not, by the way, a biblical view. A biblical view is it's all intertwined. And so it's interesting because for God, idolatry and adultery and promiscuity have always kind of mixed. So she probably was teaching, yes, sexually be sexually free, be sexually free in the society, and she was probably doing that. And by the way, that's very common in the modern American church today. We think it would be, we're maybe shocked a little bit by it, but you know, I don't think there's a church in town that doesn't have couples living together. I don't think there's a church in town that doesn't have a generation of people who are being promiscuous in their ranks. I know there's not a church in town where there aren't people who are dealing in some form of pornography. Right? The difference is the struggle to overcome sin versus the permissiveness of it. This is the difference. And she was probably teaching, oh, that's fine. Just go do whatever you want. Go to the feast. Have the orgies. Cheat on your wife. Nobody really cares. Cheat on your husband. It's fine. Everybody does it, and it really isn't that big of a deal. And it can all be fine. It can all be overcome. And Jesus is coming saying, no, this is a big, big, bad deal. And I want it cleaned up in my church is what Jesus is saying. It could be that it's not just the symbolic promiscuity and sexual immorality of the physical but it's also this sense of their idolatry, their turning away from God. God always equated idolatry in the Old Testament with adultery to him. In fact, there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 16 about how the, he viewed the nation turning from him to worship other gods, and he, treated, and he speaks to the nation of Judah as if she is an immoral, loose, prostitute woman who is his wife. And he has some things to say about her that are so crude and so shocking that Ezekiel 16 is not fit to be read in church. <laughs> you can go home and read that for yourself. But you would see that he takes this huge, strong view that idolatry, worship of anything other than him, is considered, a, in a sense, a sexual immorality, is considered adultery. And probably... Jezebel in this church was teaching both the actual physical sexual immorality and the spiritual one as well. And he's angry about it. She's also teaching him to go ahead and eat the food sacrificed to idols, to the guilds that you're participating in. No big deal. Now, the Apostle Paul at one point would have said, yeah, you know, idols are nothing because we know that they have no power. 
and the, the meat sacrificed to idols isn't a big deal. And so it does say this in Romans. There's a big discussion about that. But something's different in what she's teaching. She's teaching full participation. Paul was teaching what happens if you go to a dinner and meat is put on your plate and you think it was sacrificed to an idol. How do you respond to that food on your table? Should you eat it or not eat it? She's saying something more. Go to the wild orgy, participate in the worship of the pagan gods. It won't mean anything towards your Christianity. And God is not happy with that. I wonder in our world, in the modern era, none of us are really struggling with, you know, I've been invited to the Festival of Apollo tomorrow night, and I'm not sure I should go. We aren't aren't wrestling with that. I wonder in our world what ways... We have elevated things to an idle state that we take and we serve higher than we serve God. An idol is anything that we worship that gets our devotion, our attention, and sets our value and ethic system, and we use that to be the God that tells us what is right, what is wrong, how do I invest my time in myself. And I think in the modern society, there are clearly people who have allowed their political party to become their idol. It has is, it is achieved that status for them. That it is the God. And then they bring the Christianity underneath their democratic or their republican views. And they submit their Christianity to the views of the party. Instead of putting Christianity on the top and the views of the party below. I think there are idols of that kind that happen. I think there are other associations and things that could happen within our society of clubs or unions or organizations that are joined, and they get so much of our attention and devotion that they become the one determining our value system, our ethics system, what we believe to be right and wrong, and then Christianity comes underneath those. It was the same in Thyatira with the food sacrificed to idols. Jesus has clearly said, I've given her time to repent. Meaning somehow he has said, and he keeps mentioning, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. I need you to fix this. And he's been long-suffering and patient. And in this passage, his patience is coming to an end. He says, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Ooh, those are some pretty strong words from our loving Jesus, aren't they? You know, we always like to think of Jesus always, always open-armed, always loving. And this side of Jesus, this warrior side, this conquering victor side, this one who is the destroyer of sin, this judgment side of Jesus. We don't like to talk about that much, but that's how he talks about himself. And he says this, he says, I will strike down the adulterers, those who joined with her teaching, those who've gone in with her and gone along with it. He says, I'm going to strike you all down. Those of you who've partnered with her in going down the ways that she has taught, I'm going to strike you down. And her children, probably meaning her the offspring would be like her, the birth of her ideas and her plans and her, her, um, what she has laid out in terms of if we do this, this will be the outcome, the outcomes and the destinies that she is trying to bring about. He goes, I'm going to destroy those. I'm going to kill those. I'm going to cut off their memory. And then he says, unless they repent. He's always leaving the option. 
Judgment's coming unless there's a repentance. And this is interesting because he still is extending mercy. And in this particular passage, it's interesting because he uses the prefix meta in front of repent. Mega means a lot. Meta means many and diverse and spread out all over the place. Meta. Right? And so he uses that for, unless they meta repent, I'm going to come, which meant, oh, they had a lot of things to repent about. Not just one or two. Many, many things that they had tainted themselves with. And then he says, I'm searched the hearts and minds. Meaning you can't hide it. You can't hide it. He searches the hearts and minds. He knows what's going on deep in the core. Other people don't know. And he says, it doesn't matter that other people know or don't know. He knows. That's what he's saying to them. And he goes, understand this. You can't hide from me, he's saying. And of course, his goal is purification, holiness, and blessing. That's always his goal. Where even at the last minute, he's saying, I'm still extending repentance to you as an offer of grace and mercy. Then he turns to the rest of them and he says, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. It's interesting because at some point, this group had said, in order to truly experience the grace of God, you have to sin the deep things of Satan. The deeper your sin, the more you experience the wildness of the satanic experiences, the wildness of life, the more you will appreciate the grace God gives you. And they had taught each other to go out and experience the deep things of Satan, as they called them. And so here's Jesus saying, look, I'm talking to you guys who have not fallen into that trap. And those of you who have stayed away from that, and I'm not going to place any other burdens on you. And he says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says to everybody else who's there, he says, it's kind of like this thing, he goes, hey, nevertheless, you who are still there, hang on. Don't quit. Don't give up. And sometimes it can feel that way. Like in a society, you can feel like, look, are there many of us left to actually believe this? There aren't many of us left to kind of follow Jesus. I'm trying to follow your word the way your word says. I mean, I'm being asked to compromise so often. And it gets so hard to do. And, you know, I look at other people and they're compromising and their lives don't seem to be destroyed. They seem to get blessed. You're giving them good jobs. They're prospering. They're not having difficulties. Why am I trying to hang on to your word and I'm feeling the pain and the hurt and the difficulty of trying to do what is right? And it's painful to me. And I look around and other people, they're not. And so it gets difficult to hold on. It gets difficult to hold on and hold fast. And the tendency is to want to compromise. The tendency is to, I know what God has said, but. And the but is always followed by an excuse for why you don't have to do what God said, whatever the case may be. Whether it be about your money or your marriage or managing your children or your devotion to your job or whatever it may be. The but always means why I don't have to do what God has said. I'm acknowledging what God has said, but I see this. And the propensity is to want to compromise. 
and give in just a little around the edges. And if you give in just a little around the edges, then you kind of step into a place, you're like, but it's still okay here. I mean, I've given in a little around the edges and it's not so bad. So if I can give in around the edges and it's not so bad, well, maybe I could just go a little, a little bit more this way. And I'm still feeling pretty good. It's not, you know, I'm not really being cursed anymore. And, and maybe I could go a little further out. And then at one point you find yourself outside of God's will entirely. And wondering why you can't worship, you can't hear his word, why prayers seem cold, why suddenly the spiritual life seems dead. And then rather than draw back into the warmth and the fire of his word and his ways and his worship and prayers, you get further into the cold. And you stay further out there. And Jesus is saying to those of you who've held on, and you've watched other people drift, but you've held on, and you haven't quit, and you haven't given up, and you haven't wandered off, I've got a prize for you. Now, I, I think this is interesting. I've got to tell you, in my personal mind, I kind of want Jesus to say in his passage, to you who overcome and transform Thyatira into a better city, you're going to get this reward. That's not actually what he's saying. What he says is, to you who hang in there, even though nothing around you is going to change. But you won't give up. You're going to hang on. You're not going to compromise. You're going to be the one who holds on and holds fast. I have a prize for you. And the interesting thing is, in this particular passage, he says, until the end. You've got to hold on until the end. You've got to keep, you've got to overcome and keep my deeds until the end. The end of what? Well, probably your life, most likely. Until the end. And I, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And here he's quoting Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm of when the Messiah finally arrives on earth in splendor and glory, and he sits on the throne of Jerusalem, and he rules the entire world with peace. And the peace will be established with a rod of iron. Right? How, do you, how, how can you make peace? Oh, believe me, he makes peace. Even those who don't want peace are going to be given peace. Right? That's what the rod of iron means. He will make justice. He will destroy corruption. He will eliminate war. He will, he will get rid of all those things using his power to do it. And he's saying to you who've hung on and you've overcome, you're going to participate with me in this. You're going to be one of them who's with me in this day. When I receive my authority, I'm going to pass pieces of my authority on to you. That's what he's saying. He says, actually, in that day, we will become judges of the earth with him. 1 Corinthians, actually, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 say that. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. The Apostle Paul wrote that to a church who was having disputes and taking their disputes into a court of law. And he had to write them, you're going to a secular judge who worships pagan gods that has no moral values or ethics that doesn't even know who God is and you're going to them to get a right decision? Do you not know who you are? You are the ones with the truth of God. You are the ones with the power of the Holy Spirit. You are the ones who know reality. And one day, he's going to set you up to be a judge and a ruler of the nations of the earth. He's going to set you up to be someone who judges angels. If you have that capacity, you certainly have it now to moderate disputes between yourselves. That's what he's saying to them in Corinthians. 
in the second coming in his power and his glory when Jesus comes, it's interesting because there's an army dressed in white linen riding white horses with him that come with him. Who are those people? Who are they? They're not angels. They're the saints. They're the saints who've held on and overcome. And he says to them, you will get, you who overcome, you're going to get the morning star. And I know most of us are like, la-ti-da, what the heck is that? <laughs> right? And why would I want such a thing? And it's, again, one of those things that means something to the ancients in their era that doesn't quite click with us until we unpack it. To the ancients, whenever there was a great hero like Hercules or Perseus and they die, what happens to them? They get hung in the stars, don't they? That's why our constellations are named after these great heroes, the giants who were, did marvelous things. And so it could be that what he's referring to is if you hang in there and you overcome till the end, you will receive that kind of reward, that kind of heroic, eternal perspective of being the champion that you are. Don't worry about life now. Worry about that then. That could be what he means. But the other thing is, when you unpack the term morning star, it occurs often in the Bible, actually. And when it occurs, it always seems to mean a title. It is a title of dominion and power and rule. And it's interesting because it's a title that Satan tries to take. Sometimes the term morning star is in reference to Satan. He took the power of trying to grab dominion and rule and power over the earth when he waged war against God. He tried to become the morning star, and Jesus on the cross takes it back from him and grabs that title back to himself. So when you look up the title of morning star and do a study on it, sometimes it's referring to Satan and sometimes it's referring to Jesus. What's going on? It's the title of dominion and rule over the earth. Who gets to own it? The usurper or the true king? And he says, I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you this title of dominion and rule. The third thing about it is, it's the last star seen hanging in the sky. It's probably the planet Venus. And it hangs in the sky, and the last star seen is the sun dawns. It's the brightest star in the morning. The evening star always meant the coming of darkness. And to the ancients, the evening star represented death. And the morning star represented the coming dawn, and it always represented life. And so when he says, I will give you the morning star, it's the symbol that I'm going to give you to be the front runners to see the dawning of the age of hope and glory and power and newness and life that is coming. You will see it as a front runner to everybody else. I'm going to give you the morning star if you overcome. It's interesting for Jesus that the new tolerance is actually not a virtue. Maybe the old tolerances are not. I don't know. It's probably up for a debate and would be worth a discussion in a Bible study. But certainly the new tolerance, the way it's defined, is not a virtue to Jesus. Nelson's Bible commentary says this, and with this I'll finish. He says, note that he who overcomes is further identified as the one who keeps my works until the end. To this faithful believer, Christ promises the privilege of ruling and reigning with him in his kingdom and sharing in his royal splendor. 
while all believers share the glory of Christ by being glorified with him, it seems that not all believers will share his royal splendor with the accompanying privilege of reigning with him. The words power over the nations and the quote from Psalm 2.9, which prophesies the Messiah's all-powerful role, link overcoming believers with the earthly rule of Christ in Revelation chapter 20. Only those believers who are overcomers and who persevere in obedience to the end of life have the promise of being co-heirs with Christ. He will share his sovereignty with messianic partners who have proven their trustworthiness in this life by doing the will of God to the end. And it is to this exalted destiny which all believers should aspire. Stand with me as we close in prayer. Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, you are the bright and morning star. You are the one who foretells and shows the dawning of a new era and a new age of love and peace and hope and life. It is you. And you get to say what is true and what is false. And we, Lord, are left being asked either to be obedient, and we're being asked that, or we can choose to be disobedient. And our prayer this morning is, that you would give us the strength to be obedient. That you would give us the understanding and the wisdom to know why obedience is more important. That you would give us the courage to stay obedient when the temptation is to quit. That you would give us what is needed to hold fast until the end and we can be found faithful. I know, Lord, sometimes our own personal aspirations and desires are to change the world for Jesus Christ. And I read this passage and I hear you say, I'm not asking you to change the world, I'm asking you to hold on. Hold on until the end. Because there is much to be gained and much to be learned and a great favor to be bestowed on those who will hold fast to the end and not give up. Lord, may we be found people who hold fast to the end and not give up. And Lord, may we as a people be found to receive the blessing that you did give Thyatira, this church, in the early part of your statements, Lord, that their deeds at the last were better and greater and stronger and more important and more powerful than their deeds at the first. May our love and our patience and our faithfulness and our perseverance grow. May your blessing remain upon all of us. We ask this in the name of you, Jesus Christ, most high God. Amen. God bless you, and we're going to keep struggling through these passages over the next few weeks, and thank you at home for watching. God bless you.